Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm thrilled to welcome today's very special guest, sex therapist and dear friend, Dr. Emily Morse. She's the host of Sex with Emily and the author of the brand new book, Smart Sex. Tell me about your mama's kitchen. That simple request opens up a flood of delicious memories, and it's at the center of the Audible original podcast, Your Mama's Kitchen. On Your Mama's Kitchen, host Michelle Norris talks to guests like Michelle Obama, Glennon Doyle, Leslie Jones, Matthew McConaughey, and more about how their earliest culinary experiences help shape their personal and professional lives. And of course, each guest brings a recipe for a favorite dish from their youth, so you can taste a bit of their story. It's a show about cuisine and culture, ingredients and identities, and the meals and memories that make us who we are. Find Your Mama's Kitchen anywhere you listen. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. Sex is not a quick fix when there's these foundational challenges that you're having. You're like, I know how to give, you know, oral sex, you know, in a million different ways, but I'm not in the mood and I'm not turned on. And I know that sex is important because I love my partner and I, I know sex is important, but we can't quite hack how to be turned on and ready to go and ready for sex at the right time. And a lot of that is because we don't understand our arousal desire process. We mm -hmm. don't know that like if the house is a mesh and mess and there's dishes in the sink or I have resentments with my partner or I haven't worked out in a week or that there's all these factors of why you're not turned on. And so I think getting people to actually think about their sex life in that way and trying to think about like, what do I know to date? just from my sexual history, but like what's happening with my hormones? What's happening with my psychology? Do I have unhealed trauma? Do I? So, and you'd think that that would be sort of obvious, but it's really not. Like mm -hmm. if you've been on an antidepressant for, for years or even just recently or any other blood pressure medication and now you're like not as turned on, people often don't make that connection. Emily Morse is not only a dear, dear friend and a stellar human, She's also a doctor of human sexuality, revolutionizing discussions surrounding sex and the pursuit of pleasure. She's already a best-selling author, though her just-released book, Smart Sex, How to Boost Your Sex IQ and Own Your Pleasure, is the navigational guide we all need in our lives. She also leads a masterclass on sex and communication and hosts the top-rated and chart-topping podcast, Sex with Emily. Through candid conversations, she challenges the inaccurate cultural programming surrounding sex and promotes the value of open conversation to foster connection. Today, we talk about how women often find themselves disconnected from sex and their bodies, 
often due to social conditioning and traumatic events that occur during our sexual development. Emily helps us consider ways to reconnect with ourselves in order to feel more embodied, more aligned, and more pleasure. Before we get to today's conversation, just a quick note that at the end of this episode, you can hear an excerpt from the audio version of On Our Best Behavior. So stick around if you're curious to hear what it's about. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Congrats on your book. And I know in some ways it's just a bow on your incredibly long and varied career teaching us all about sex. But as I know from my many conversations with you, you're really interested more in pleasure Mm -hmm. and desire. And that's where there's a great Venn diagram between our work, even though I am it's funny. It's like, I even want to call myself, I'm prudish. I'm traumatized. I'm all of these things. But in talking to you, you're pushed to re-embody and actually get in touch with our wanting Mm -hmm. is very much aligned for me with the last few years of my life. And also Mm -hmm. the way that you connect it in many ways to an essential part of our wellness. Mm Yeah. Yeah. It is. Pleasure is pleasure is part of our wellness and it's something that we put conditions on, right? We don't deserve pleasure unless we do these certain things or we check everything off our to-do list or I had this, you know, I don't deserve dessert tonight because I didn't work out or I don't deserve to go see a friend. Whatever you look at as pleasure, we often put on the back burner. And the whole premise of, of my work and of this book too is prioritizing pleasure and also looking at it as something that we are in that pleasure is, is, is presence. Pleasure is productive. Like the more you actually think about your life and you think about what can I do that actually feels good. And I'm not even just talking about sex. That's the other thing. I want to expand the definition of pleasure. What, what makes you feel good? And I actually help people put together a list and myself, I was like, cause I had day, I did this thing. I went on this retreat a few years ago and they were like, cause I love doing all the the retreats and learning, right? I was trying to better myself. And they had this thing called, I have it in the book, the pleasure percentage. Like how much of your week do you spend doing things that make you feel good, that are giving you pleasure? And it could be anything. Picking flowers, gardening, seeing friends, going for a walk, cooking, baking, sex. And you had to write it all down. And there was a formula, which I put in the book. And then you do like the math and you figure out what percentage of your life, of of the week, do you have anything pleasurable? And mine was like 1.2%. Mm -hmm. I was like, that is a very pathetic percentage of time that is pleasure. And I had already been doing this work. This was like 10 years ago. And I said, how do I up that pleasure? Like, because then you realize once you start really consciously and intentionally placing pleasure into your life, like how you would plan your weekly workouts or your weekly other things that are important, then I realized that you will have more you know, more joy in your life. And I tried to get that number up to at least like, my goal is to get up to like 20%, yeah. 15%. And I definitely have gotten that number up. So just like in thinking about all the things that are important, we don't prioritize our pleasure. So my mission is to get people to look at that. What makes us feel good? Do more of that. Yeah. We're going to talk about dissociation and embodiment in a minute because I think so many of us, at least I found I was not really in my body, mm-hmm. but... Pleasure, particularly in our culture and our society, it feels sinful. And again, mm-hmm. taking it to this idea of the way that you don't have to be religious for these tenets 
to live in us. There's something about pleasure seeking. We hear so much about our overly addictive society and this idea Mm -hmm. that all we want is pleasure. And there's still this puritanical vibe that runs through us, that we should be denying ourselves, Mm -hmm. that this should all be hard, that it's wrong to receive. Mm -hmm. We're also going to talk about the masculine and the feminine. And, you know, that certainly lives in me. It's really Mm -hmm. difficult for me to shift to a place of allowing myself to feel good Mm -hmm. and to even have sort of that, that, sense of the world and the way that I encounter it. And I write about this a lot, but just even the way that I was eating, where it was sort of this thing that I needed to do and I would stand and shove food in my mouth, but I wasn't really tasting anything. Mm -hmm. I wasn't enjoying it. Do you find that it's gendered? Do you feel like men are better at allowing pleasure or do you think we're all deeply cut off? I think we're all deeply cut off because there's two different kinds of pleasure. So now when you're talking, I'm listening to you thinking, there is the numbing pleasure. There's like the sitting and scrolling and social, I don't know if that's really pleasure, or there's drugs, or there's scrolling, or there's shopping, or there's a lot of numbing pleasure. But then there's the pleasure that's presence, and that's Mm -hmm. the more embodied pleasure where you're really, you know, what am I feeling in my body right now? What am I tasting? What am I going to take up, you know, this whole take a bite of food, put the fork down, taste it. Like if I, I've heard that so many times and I, then I look down and my meal's gone, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the slowness. I think that's the kind of pleasure that I'm talking about is that being really slow, really tasting what I'm tasting. Like how does the food taste? What are the, you know, how does it feel going down my throat? What are the aftertastes? What does um, touch feel like? I think we just, we all go so fast. Yeah. So I think that is not necessarily gendered. I think what is gendered is that maybe men, give themselves more permission to do more things that make him feel good. I'm going to go, this is very like stereotype. I'm going to go golf. I'm going to go drink beers or hang out with my friends. But a lot of that is more the disassociative, distracted pleasure. I guess really what I talk about is pleasure that is embodied, meaning it's fully in my body, but I also don't have any judgment around it. It's mm-hmm. like, I fully deserve this time with you as a friend. Like when we go on our walks, mm-hmm. to me, that's a lot of pleasure is connectivity, like the authentic connection with friends, getting a massage, allowing my partner, you know, being with my partner and doing like touching that feels good and not feeling like I have to immediately give back. So I think that pleasure is a very confusing word. I do think pleasure is a feminine word too. Sometimes I think when I talk about pleasure, you kind of get men sometimes maybe shut off from it, but I think, you know, just the way, the way I think we all deserve more conscious pleasure and slow pleasure. I care about my kids and my husband, but potentially second and third to my sleep. I'm only half kidding. If I don't get good sleep, I'm a mess. After all, here's a stunning and yet not surprising statistic. One out of three Americans report being sleep deprived. No wonder we're all so grumpy. This has massive implications for our health as well as for our general life satisfaction. Women in particular are significantly impacted by sleep deprivation. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw deal, which is why it's so important to invest in a great mattress and even better sheets, specifically sheets that are soft but not shiny and cozy but not sweaty. To this end, I love Cozy Earth because they make viscose bamboo sheets that are indescribably soft, so soft. It's a bed hug like no other. And what's even better, they make exceptional loungewear. 
soft joggers that are an elevated streamlined sweatpant, and truly handsome and flattering pajamas with cute piped edges. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. In my next life, I want to make something, anything, that can be an Oprah favorite thing. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Besides bamboo, Cozy Earth also makes linen bedding, which is perfect for summer, and they make their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye towards quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. In fact, all Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days, and they include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. If you've never tried Cozy Earth, I've got awesome news. You can save up to 35% off Cozy Earth right now. Go to CozyEarth.com and enter my promo code THREAD at checkout for up to 35% off. That's CozyEarth.com, promo code THREAD. CozyEarth.com. I don't know if other women relate to this, and again, it might be my own pattern of repression, but I, for me, too, my sexuality or sexual energy, I think has always scared me a little bit, or it's gotten, it's been dangerous for me Mm -hmm. as a child or as a teen. And so what I always sense in myself, too, is this sort of, I can feel it as a physical sensation in my pelvic floor of mm-hmm. a tamping down mm. and wanting to control the world by controlling my own response to it. Right. And that might be, I don't know if that's uniquely me or whether for women, too, there's sort of this like... I think it's common. I think that it's more common than not that most of us are disassociated. But I think if your experience, if you want to talk about it, I don't know how much you've talked about you in your book and... It's, I think it's in, it is in your last chapter where you talk about your experience disassociating. I mean, I got to be honest, it's globally. Most, some of the most common questions I get asked is, why am I so anxious during sex? Why can't I focus? Why am I numb? Why aren't I feeling it? Why am I thinking about the to-do list? But you get into your own experience of disassociating, which again is really, really common. So if you want to yeah, share more sure. about that. Yeah. And this it's is obviously powerful and real and yeah, like I hope it's, and- I hope it's universal. I mean, the point of writing about myself in the parts that I do in my book is with the intention that obviously the personal is often universal. Mm-hmm. So hopefully there are women who are recognized their themselves in my experience and now have a name for it, but I didn't know that I was dissociating. So I would just often have this sensation of spinning and sort of being elsewhere when I was intimate, and particularly in intimate encounters. But it would happen also in other high-stress okay. moments for me where I would find myself spinning in what is now, I now know, is a dissociated way. And I have done a lot of therapy around it now. MDMA specifically was really helpful for me. And it was two things. It was the revelation of an early childhood experience when I was probably eight or nine with a friend of a family friend. And I don't think that he, I don't even know what he did to me at this point. And I don't really, 
care, mm-hmm. which I know sounds so odd because for me, it was more about being in the presence of this man who made me feel like he loved me and found me irresistible and that it was my fault, mm-hmm. my responsibility for inspiring this in him. Right. There was something that you did. Uh, there's something that I did. There was like something about my body or my sensibility, even as a child, that was responsible for his reaction to me. I was making him lose control. That's what I remember. And and then I had an experience in high school that I had sort of shrugged off. I remember it very vividly. Now I would call it a rape. I had spent an entire day trying to dog and avoid this guy and express to him my lack of interest and and then ultimately ended up in a room alone with him. And in that instance, the big thing for me was one, feeling like I inherently was making myself unsafe, and two, was I had an orgasm. And and then never managed to do that again until my 40s in the presence of anyone else, in the presence of anyone else, because it was so um, disconnect Mm. between what I wanted. This I know is universal, Mm -hmm. that there is this confusion between what we want and what our body does. And then after, when I sort of Mm. decided to write this book and to go back into that experience, which I was able to sort of re- contextualize after understanding what happened to me as a child because what I remember was with this when I was a child was this sort of like I will make myself very still and he will leave me alone and that was my move in high school was like I will essentially go away Mm -hmm. and this won't happen Mm -hmm. so anyway I so powerful yeah thank you for sharing all this this is just I mean, just both of those back to back or it makes yeah. sense. But why. they're not like, I think that a lot of women have the same experience, but there's this disconnect, this feeling mm-hmm. of betrayal from my body mm-hmm. that I had. And so I think I've, throughout for the next several decades, I was proving to myself that I had control mm. and that there was Color something that couldn't be could, taken from me. Yeah. yeah. Even I mean, though I was with my husband, who's like the, yeah. the best guy in the right, world. Exactly. Well, your earliest conditioning. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I don't know how much you've talked about it. I know in your book we talk about it, but I mean, that's just so, so that exactly explains it. And it is, it's really common. It, it, each of us kind of interpret kind of a sexual assault or rape in different ways. And it's probably the most common thing that happens to women. Yep. And then what happens as a result of that is you just, you literally shut it down. Yeah. You are, sh- I mean, after the first experience, you were like, I'm not safe. Men yeah. are not safe. I'm too powerful. I'm, yeah, I'm powerful. It's my fault. So yeah. you all these messages, I'm too powerful. I'm, I'm not safe. I did something wrong. It's yep. my fault because you're so young, right? That's what kids do, right? You, you think it, something goes out, parents explode or they're fighting or whatever it is. That's what our default is I did something wrong. It's my body. My body's not a safe place. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to learn to disconnect everything. It's all energy, right? Like your pelvic floor. Like yep. maybe you did feel tingling, right? Because it's, it's also physiological. Like someone touches you. Maybe there was some around, but you're like, I'm shutting it down. And then so it would make sense that, and, and, and then talk about the, the experience in high school where then you had an orgasm, which is so confusing, right? Anyway, because you're like, I don't want this, but it felt good, but you can't control it. So it's all being out of control. Yeah. So you decided the next 20 years of life that there's like no way I'm going to be able to even tap into what I want. Because yeah. you, never, you never even got, like, I, what makes me like so sad 
and is that you never even got the chance to go on the journey and figure out what you wanted because sex became an unsafe place where you couldn't express yourself, you couldn't be free, you couldn't be out there, you mm-hmm. just kind of had to be a vessel. Yeah. And shut down. Yeah. And I have a feeling that that particular experience Very common, is common. And as is the programming that sort of women aren't supposed to really enjoy sex and all the rampant sort of slut shaming that we do. Well, that's the other thing. So I think that is super, super common. And and most women don't know what we want because it's not okay to be sexual. It's not mm-hmm. okay to be lusty. It's not okay to ask for what we want. It's more about performing for our partners, performing for our men, performing for, you know, to use a, use a gender. So... You had like the one, two, three punch because <laughs> I, did, I didn't think it was okay to ask for what I wanted ever just because I was told that it was about men's pleasure and if they had a good time, well, then it was a good time. Yes. Right? They had an orgasm. They got off. I did all the moves that were sexy. It was check. I was a great lover. Yeah. But for you, you couldn't even like go there. So you had to go into overdrive. You probably couldn't even feel it. Yeah. I don't know. Like, did you have feeling in your body? Like, Not really. Yeah. yeah, not really. I think that there was sort of like a deadening mm-hmm. and... That's been really interesting for me to, and a lot of it is learning where my pelvic floor was and then having sort of an education in that and this understanding also for anyone who's listening that, you know, that's like sort of your Kegel zone, but we just clench it. And so many women, I think, don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. And then it's, you know, then you have a baby and you're worried about peeing all over yourself, but you notice one of the body work people that I work with is like, just pay attention to how you feel in any situation and around people. Are you holding Mm -hmm. or are you relaxed? Yes. It's a really interesting. It is interesting. So I've been working on that, that you're going to love this. I've been working on this as well, because again, yeah, it is the pelvic floor. It's the power source as our friend Lauren Roxford says, her book is the power source. We all walk around with this very clenching, tensing feeling that we're not even aware of. And a lot of women, first off, like about 80% of women have pain during sex at some point in their life. For many women, it's chronic. Every time they have pain, like they have sex, even if a tampon goes in, they have pain. Mm. And it is because of this. And there's a lot of different reasons for it. Some women are just born, they have overgrowth of nerve endings. But for many of us, it's because they had an early sexual experience and we just walk around this clenching. So there's literally, if you think about a clench, there's no way that this energy can flow. Because if yeah. you think about the time you might have felt aroused or turned on for anybody, if you just take a hand or you put it over your body or you touch yourself and you're like, what am I feeling? And then you start to breathe in your pelvic floor. And then you start to feel tingles. But for many of us, like you have to actively get into that. But for many, we just don't feel it because we've been shut down for whatever reasons. And I've been calling lately and I had a friend who coined this, but she's like, like when I'm trying to make a decision and, I'm, and I don't know, she's like, Emily, is it a vagina blast? Or is it a vagina clench? <laughs> she's, like, she's like, like it could be like, do you want to go out with that person? She's like, is, is it a blast or a clench? And I'm like, and it's so funny to get touched because that's literally when we talk about our intuition, how women to follow it. And that's something that I've had to work on too. Like I think like I shut down things. And I'm like, that's a, it's a kind of like a hell yes or hell no, but taking it back to be like, what does your vagina actually yeah. say? Well, There's messaging in there. There is. And it's interesting to be in your presence just out in the world because yes, you're a beautiful woman. But that aside, I've been around many beautiful women. And when I am with you, I think I joke, I know it's called a vulva, but I say that you have a magical <laughs> vagina. But you have, and, and I'm sure people Aww. can sort of take an inventory of, of people in their lives who are, cap- who exude, who aren't sexy, they're sexual. Mm-hmm. And they have sort of this like erotic energy moving in their bodies. And so 
I will be with Emily and people are like, let me walk this coffee around the counter to give it to you. Let me like the people, the way that men and women alike of all ages are just generally attracted to you is mm-hmm. fascinating. But I, I credit it besides the fact that you're infectiously appealing to the fact that you're open and you know, how you're embodied and you're running this energy that's very, open and magnetic. Mm. So you, I know in the book, you're, you. you're, you teach us all how to do that, but it is special. <laughs> no, but that's so, thank you for, I, I mean, that's, that's so, it's a practice. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. It's really lovely. Because you'll, no- you'll be wearing track pants. It's not about a performance, a sexiness. It's about a sexuality mm. that I feel like you exude. Mm. And that we should all work to exude so that we can have magical vaginas. We can have magic vaginas. I love that you think that. Well, thank you. I guess it's good, good, good branding if we think of that, right? (laughs) Good marketing for Sex with Emily, like to have a a magical vagina. But it's a ten days to (laughs) unleashing your magical vagina. Ten days, magical (laughs) vagina. Lisa and I are working on something because it's energy and it's a practice. So I am not always. Let me. This is the thing about being embodied and running the energy. I have plenty of days, moments, times where I am not that. Yeah. And it's a practice, which I love that everything is a practice. I can work on breathing into my pelvic floor. And like a great way to start with that, like if you're, and I'd love to know some of the work you've done to kind of open up more and feel more like in touch with your husband because it's like, it's a, it's really just, I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, it's breath work. It's eye gazing, it's kegels, the, the pee-stopping muscles that we use to stop and start the flow of urine. I want to remind people that men can do kegels too, which is always shocking to people, but we all have a pelvic floor. And so even if you're feeling like you are disconnected, like one of the great places to start, even for me, I do, even if I can do three minutes a day of breath work, I've got this great app. It's literally called like breathing. Yeah. And it's three minutes and I'll just go breathe. And at the top of the breath, I'm like, and I do like a little kegel. Mm-hmm. And then I release it and I do it again. And that just kind of, that really, it's like a pumping. That yeah. pumping, it starts to, to flow through you. So I just, sort of anything we can do, it's all blood flow too. So moving our bodies, walking, talking, releasing, you know, whatever's holding us back. There's a lot to it. But I think that if you just think of the mechanics of it, it's being more in touch with it because talking about your experience or what a lot of us go through with sex or just having shame around it, we completely shut down. And this is what I find from so many women. This is something that is different with genders is that for a lot of women, we are shut down. We don't want to take a mirror. We don't want to look at our, we don't want to look at our vagina. Like we had pictures of them all up on a wall and you're like, pick yours out of a lineup. Like, I don't think we could. We couldn't say, what does my vagina look like or my vulva? Because we just kind of want it to go away. Maybe there was shame. There was bad messaging around it. Maybe one person shamed us. Who knows? It's just not acting as if we want it. And then you have a baby. I didn't do that. Hats off to you. Because some women don't love their bodies, right? And then they have a baby. They're like, I just had a human come out of my vagina. And now I definitely don't know what's happening with it. I'm dissociated. So throughout our lifetimes, from shaming, from being told not to masturbate, being told it's not okay... We are disassociated. Yeah. And this, again, is so ancient and cultural. I was talking to my friend Laura about this, and she was like, please write an op-ed. This is a better op-ed for you. But she was was walking around the Met, and she was like, it's wild because you look at ancient and modern art, but primarily you look at these sculptures, you look at these paintings where, like, every wrinkle on the testicle – is rendered like it is like <laughs> right. an anatomical model 
of a penis. And then all of the women are Barbie dolled out. Yeah. You don't see any detail ever. So, of course, women are like, I don't know what these are even supposed to look like, much less whether mine... The intricacies okay. of mine, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's completely, it's been shamed, it's been hidden, it's been ridiculed, and then we see the advent of porn, right? The advent of porn's been around for the beginning of time. The advent of, of porn being available in our pockets the last yeah. 18, 20 years. And then that's even made it worse because women are like, oh, it's supposed to look like this thing that I'm seeing in porn, which, by the way, is like, they're like cheating towards camera. It's tough. There's makeup on it. Or maybe there's certain vulvas and vaginas that are attractive. So there's just been a whole shit storm of information for women about their bodies. They're like, it's not okay. It's not safe. It's not sexy. It's not pretty. It's dirty. It's wrong. Yeah. And then we're supposed to be like feeling sexy and ready to go at the drop of a hat. Right. And sex is supposed to be amazing. Much less like you watch porn and... It, I think you say it's like watching F1 and like trying to learn how to drive, yeah, but not exactly. even because F1 is like a certain amount of artistry <laughs> right. and excellence, whereas porn is just pure performance. So women right. are fed this like you should be shrieking mm-hmm. like a banshee in pleasure as like you're pummeled from yeah, behind. Exactly. Whereas I've heard you say like women need Fingers, toys, mouth, mouth, yeah. Period. Fingers, toy, mouth is how we're going to orgasm. Like that's how we're going to have the most pleasure. There are people who could, of course, have pleasure through a, a penis, and there's reason for that. It's actually our anatomy. Yeah. It's, if your clitoris is a inch or too close, like, the closer your clitoris is to your vaginal opening, you're more likely to have an orgasm during penetrative sex. It's not, you know, and that's just. Can't that's just how you were born, but otherwise, it is fingers, it's a mouth, it's a toy, it's slowness, it's foreplay, whether it's verbal or it's touching. There's just all of these ways that we are told, and of course, because of because of being told that sex is only for procreation for so many years. And if I'm telling you now that penis going vagina is not going to give women the most pleasure, can you imagine just how, but there's all, this, the cards are stacked against us yeah. in so many ways. There's a funny moment in Smart Sex where you write too about fielding, you know, calls, I mean, over the decades, right, from, and, and the way that men are consumed often, obviously erectile dysfunction, but also by the size or girth of mm-hmm. their penis. And you're like, it really doesn't matter no, because don't. women, it's like not, no, not, shouldn't be the main thing. No, not the main thing at all. But men are way, I always say like men are way more obsessed with their penises, I think, than, than, than women are. Yeah. Women are with men. And it's not that it's, and, and also just to say that there are women who will definitely want that larger penis, but just like there'll be men who want really large breasts. And yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not their girl. Right. I'm not the person. That's okay. Like, you know what I mean? There's something for everyone, but there's so many other things that we can worry about. I just, I wish I just, and I guess I try to do that in smart sex is re, I just want to rebrand sex altogether because so much of what we know about it is wrong and untrue and actually yeah. just not even true, not factual. And so most of us are walking around with dearth of pleasure and a lot of pain around sex. Yeah. I love hosting this podcast, and I'm so grateful to all of you for supporting me and doing it. It's a great privilege to speak to amazing teachers and thinkers every week, and following my curiosity with the hopes that it resonates with your own. Ultimately, all I really want to do is go back to school so I can go deep with an instructor. So where's one place to learn from some of the most remarkable experts alive today? Masterclass. 
There are over 180 masterclass instructors, including experts in leadership, negotiation, writing, and cooking. You can learn from former FBI agent Chris Voss, who teaches negotiation, Carla Welch, who teaches personal style, Bobby Brown, who teaches how to put on makeup, or Esther Perel, who teaches relational intelligence. Don't miss Esther's recent episode on Pulling the Thread. These instructors become your own personal mentors, helping you gain real-life skills. I use Masterclass, and you should too. There are more than 200 classes to pick from, with new ones added every month. For example, Dominique Ansel taught me how to bake over the holiday break, something I thought I'd never actually learn how to do. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash thread. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash thread. Masterclass.com slash thread. I want to talk a bit about the masculine and the feminine because I was so happy to see you explore this too. This is, I think, obvious to to many, but for some, it's like new information. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, and the idea is that there's your sexuality. It's different from your gender. We're there as a culture, kind of. And then there's masculine and feminine energy, which is different from being female and male. These are energies that are not attached to gender, and we each have masculine Mm -hmm. and feminine energy. And masculine being, I don't know how you would define it. I define it typically as like truth, order, structure. This is balanced masculinity, Mm -hmm. divine masculinity, balanced divine femininity, creativity, nurturance, care, receptivity, Mm -hmm. and that... We're in in and out of our, ma- you and I both spend a lot of time in our masculine. I'm probably more comfortable in my masculine. But to have sexual polarity with your partner, mm-hmm. regardless of gender, regardless of whether you are you identify as non-binary or are very sort of binary, mm-hmm. and absent those, that sort of polarity, you're going to struggle to have sexual tension. Yes. So can you talk a bit about, mm-hmm. and then you have some great exercises, but can you talk, did you always know that? No, I've, I've had to study this as well. I did not always know. What I always knew was that attraction was so elusive. Like why is it hot sometimes and not hot other times and what makes attraction? I've always been fascinated by that. But the masculine feminine just in recent years by studying with different people and reading different teachers and studying, I, I realized that like I, I, I've, I've come to understand it more so about the polarity with masculine and feminine, I think you do, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's like we all have it inside of us. You know, you can have, and I, and I too live more my masculine, except for when I guess my magical vagina is on display, according <laughs> to you, which I'm just going to take that with me forever. But no, like in business, getting shit done, being productive, being, I think you cover this in your sloth chapter, right? In your book, which is brilliant because it's like this productivity, getting things done, check it off the list, keep going. That is, I'm running a business, right? Yeah. I'm talking about sex, but when I'm sitting here talking about sex, I'm not necessarily my feminine. Maybe we were breathing for a second. I was in my feminine just now. But mostly I'm like performing and I'm talking to you and we're being directive. So the polarity and how I like to think about it is like think about like two two magnets, right? Opposite side. You got the plus and the minus. They're going to detract, right? Unless you have the, the opposites. And the opposite is what we're talking about is the polarity of the masculine and the feminine. So when you think about select sexual polarity, 
it's, I mean, an easy way to think about it is like, who's initiating and who's receiving? Yeah. Because in every situation, if we're both in a relationship and we're in our masculine and we're both initiating, that's not going to work because I want it. No, you want it. I'm leading. You're leading. Or if we're both passive, like, I hope that you initiate tonight. Are you going to initiate? I'm going to initiate. It's then, then nothing happens. So in every sexual situation, you need someone to lead and someone to follow, to be in their masculine, to be in their feminine. And again, that can switch. It can be two men, two women, non-binary, like you said. But but it's, it's a concept that can be tricky for people because first they get caught up on the gender. But all I'm saying is for attraction to happen, for that sexual chemistry to happen, mm-hmm. you need somebody to be bringing more of the masculine, which is the, I guess, purposeful, directed, the container, the moving, I guess you can start with this initiation and then the feminine, how if you want to be more in your, because I can give you an example for me. So if I'm in my masculine all day and I'm working and I'm doing my things, I'm in meetings, I'm on my Zooms, but then I know I have date night. I'm going out with my partner that night. Well, I know that if I want to feel, because I tend to be more in my feminine when I want to bring the polarity. I mean, there are times where I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you a massage tonight and I'm going to leave this, but mostly I'm a receptor, I'm receiving. So what I have to do is to get out of that is I take a shower, I'm going to shower, I'm going to take a little bit longer shower, maybe I take a bath. A bath is a great way to get into your feminine, to kind of surround yourself with the hot water, to start to touch myself, like just more like suds and getting more in touch with my body. I always bring in breath work. I mean, to me, breath is just something that doing more breath work because again, a lot of us are just disconnected and shut down and I do the little kegels and I breathe. Maybe I find some fabric, sorry, but first I'll like rub low oil on my body and I put lotion on or something that makes good fabrics that make me feel good. And I literally just try to ground myself, even if it's like a half hour, an hour before I go out with my partner and just trying to feel like, how do I show up in my feminine? And then I'll allow him to show up and maybe he's making the plan or he's leading. Like, while it's so tempting to be like, did you get the reservation? Are we going? Are you driving? Like the exercises that I've learned and I've studied with some coaches, there's a guy named John Wineland who I did some retreats with. He's fascinating about this where we would go on these retreats it was kind of like a tantric breathwork masculine feminine retreat and you get paired up with partners for the evening and I wasn't allowed to no matter how hard it is because a lot of it's like we're getting shit done I know you talk about this like, you're the you're the mom you're the boss you're getting things done when like maybe Rob tries to do things you're like I've got this like I can make the sandwich better than you you have to try <laughs> to allow him, my partner to be like I'm not putting the address, like if we're going to a restaurant, I'm not putting the address into ways. I'm not opening the door. I'm not, I'm not making the plans as much as I want to lead it. I have to allow them to lead because when they're leading, they're in their masculine and mm-hmm. I'm following. And the same goes into the bedroom if this is making, it's harder to, it means it's a little bit more esoteric to explain, but because it's really energy. It's really like my energy is that I'm showing up, I'm feeling sensual and connected to my body, to my breath, and I'm allowing my partner to make the plans to lead whether we're going out that night or whether we're staying at home and then he's making the move, he's kissing me, he's touching me, and then I'm responding to that. And that energy is a cycle that is feeding each other to stoke our masculine and our feminine. Yeah. No, I think it makes a lot of sense. And and like you, I think it's it's can be difficult for women to say, particularly at this moment in time, wait, so I'm supposed to be you know, submissive. And that's not really what it is. It's more of a letting, which is also difficult to let people do stuff for us to, again, going back to beginning of the conversation to allow 
pleasure and let mm-hmm. someone make you feel good. Yeah. I think can be. It's really hard. It's, it's re- really hard. It's really hard to do that. But I, I also, so if you take it into the bedroom now, just talk about sexual polarity in the bedroom. It's like, I, and I believe this, that like my, if I'm receptive and open to what my partner's doing, which I have to show them, like if he's kissing me or doing things, I want to show it in a real way, an authentic way. Like before I started this work almost two decades ago, like let's show the opposite of that. I was performative. I'd be moaning. I'd be like, this feels good. <laughs> arching my back, doing all the things because that's what I thought was good. And that worked. Yeah. And that worked because then he's getting the feedback that it feels good and that's making him feel more confident in his masculine. But now what I work on is being, I genuinely, like I love receiving touch. That's like my 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 language, my love language, like it's a touch. So when he touches me, I let him know like, oh, that kiss feels good or the way you stroke my hand or the way you anything in fact there's some embodied we've actually worked with a somatic coach where we learned that like pleasure is expansive so we actually learned how to touch each other's close our eyes touch each other just starting with touch on our hands mm-hmm. and being able to give feedback and allowing the touch to expand through our bodies so we've done some slow slow work around it but really I just let him know and that's the energy that's the feedback loop so I'm feeling good then he's feeling good because I'm feeling good and then eventually I want to give to him and he gives to me and it's a dance but if we're both waiting for the other person or there's no response like I've been with men too who don't feel comfortable expressing their needs and they're like mute I'm like are you feeling it like does this feel good are you making a moan are you making a sound so I think there's a lot to be said for breath and letting our partner know that they're pleasing us well it's so interesting too sort of the wide curve and I know this just from sort of paying attention to you over the years and the breadth of calls that you take and you have sort of we're all on this spectrum of you know you have people who are like how do I I don't even know what pegging is, for example, but like people who are like, (laughs) you know, like wanting sort of like advanced lessons and BDSM or or a lot of kink, et cetera. And then you have people who are mute, right? Mm -hmm. Who are not even, it's just, it's such a wide range. And then Mm -hmm. to, to figure out how to get people on the same page, to get them to a place where they can feel safe. Let's talk about, I keep calling them trauma wounds. I know that that's not right. But when you, because again, I don't think I'm alone in, we live in a culture that is, teaches unwanted pregnancy, mm-hmm. erections, and STDs, the Dutch coach responsibility mm-hmm. and joy. But we have horrible sex ed. Nobody's talking to us about going beyond sort of you could have sex and die. Two, how do you actually get in touch with your own desire? How do you figure out what you want? How do you talk about it? Like we don't not, we're mm-hmm. inept at that culturally. Yeah. And I feel like most, I don't want to say most, but a lot of people don't even know what they like, right? Yeah. Or they have so much shame. One of the things that I wrote about that was incredibly helpful was Michael Bader and his research in the book Arousal. And I want to talk to you about Mm -hmm. these because you write about this too. But you hear sort of women who think that they're having, for example, a rape fantasy, but it's really more of a ravaging Mm -hmm. fantasy. But it's it comes from this feeling that a woman might want to be overpowered or overwhelmed by both a man's wanting, but also because she has been told throughout her life that she is too much. And this somehow is confirmation that she's not. Mm -hmm. 
And Mm -hmm. similarly, like fantasies around having someone like put their hand up your skirt under a table where you're sort of being sexual against your will. Mm -hmm. Because we're like absolved. I didn't have to ask for it. I didn't ask. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was really, it's a really interesting read. But you write about this too. Can you Uh sort of take us through? You you have the Meredith Shivers experience in your book about how women are attracted to everything because we don't really know. We're not even told. We have an arousal response even though we it doesn't track to what we say we, we want, want. Right. We're just disconnected from our wanting. We're disconnected. Right? We, we don't know. We're so disconnected from our wanting. And again, a lot of it does go back to the Dutch countries which are teaching responsibility and joy and we're teaching fear and danger. Yes. That's our sex ed. Like just so everyone knows, like our sex ed was you, it's fearful and it's dangerous and there's no talk of pleasure or mm-hmm. joy. So as a result of that, we're going into sex. Like literally we're going into sex without any training thinking this is going to be scary and this is going to be weird. And then like no one's saying, did that feel good? What did you like? So like that whole knowing what we want, like knowing what actually feels good is so foreign and no one's even asking us that. So I think that yes, to be like one of the most common fantasies is like up for women. And so we're talking was like the forced sex fantasy or the rape fantasy. We're mm-hmm. saying because women can say, well, I... I've never felt okay to be desired. I'll be shamed for it if I am. If I do have desire, I'm shamed for it. So I'll be called a slut. I'll be labeled. That's not okay. And then there's nothing in our culture that's even like asking us for what we want. So sex is very, very confusing and becomes performative. So a lot of the work to do is to say, okay, I'll accept the fact that I don't know. That I actually, because this is where I started too. I was like, I actually don't know what feel good is. I remember partners asking me in my 20s saying to me, you know, we'd be hooking up. They'd be like, does that feel good? And I'd just say, yeah. <laughs> Everything you're doing feels just good. It feels amazing. And like, what else do you want? I'm you like, want to keep Nothing. dry humping my keep, leg? Keep That's amazing. Keep dry humping all you want. <laughs> yes, baby, dry hump me. Like, what else do you want? And I'm thinking... I have no idea. Even if I knew, I wouldn't even know what's on the fucking menu. I don't know what to ask for because there is nothing that celebrates women's sexuality and says, here's what's on the menu. Here's what you can eat. And a a lot of it does start with recognizing that and saying, okay, so knowing what we know and maybe we've had trauma and I would love to like... It's in my mind circle back to how you've learned to be oh. more embodied. I think that's just really important to close that at some point to get back to like where how you got to where you are now from where you were, knowing whether women had trauma, a rape trauma, they had something like that, or just, just the cultural trauma of never even recognizing that you're sexual being, that you're basically a vessel. Yeah. It's how most women like, I'm a vessel. And really, that's what like penetration is or for semen or for birth. So how do we learn what our knowing is? Like, how do I know? And that starts, the first thing is the embodiment practice. I think that we talk about core desires or core erotic themes. There was a guy named Jack Morin. And I think he's the first, like in the 70s, to start. Because remember, the field of sex, human sexuality is still very, very new, especially in our culture in America. We had like the Kinsey Institute who started yeah. to study in the late 50s. And then Jack Morin talked a lot about desire. And he says that we all, and this is still debatable, but in some of it, but basically it's all we have core erotic desires. And we have something that had happened to us. We have these desires that, and I think for me, I like to look at it as a starting point because none of this is prescriptive. Like, mm-hmm. like this is not for everybody, but when you think about sexual, something sexual, what, where does your mind go? Like, where do you, 
where do you want this is this is this is more of the intellectual way of thinking about it but like when you think of sex do you want to be ravished do you want to be desired do you want to be is it transgression do you want to feel beautiful do you want to feel worshipped do you want to feel you know do you want to be spanked do you want aggression like what what kind of adjectives like what words come up for you and and a great place to start that that too is just really again but maybe when you're touching yourself or you're doing some like mindfulness practices, like what breathing into your pelvic floor, doing a test. I'm just telling you, this is how you wake in it. So I'm going to keep yeah. mentioning that like breathing. What do you, what do you, what have you wanted in the past? What's felt good to you? Are there any scenarios that come up? And then not shaming yourself for them. It's like, we're trying to get kernels along the way of your sex because we're all sexual beings. And even if it was tied to an earlier you know, assault or something like that's okay too. Because I think for a lot of women who have had that, they might want more of aggressive sex, but then they feel shame around it. It's very like, it's a shame stew, but just even just without judgment, recognizing what are my fantasies? What has turned me on? And so that's like recognizing some of those themes, which he says comes from something earlier in childhood. Now it could be, and that's because we're going through puberty. So our hormones are racing. And maybe at the time that we started having like an explosion of hormones, we saw something sexual. So like, let's talk about this as a very generic, like you have a foot fetish, right? And that's something that <laughs> men are like, oh, I don't know why I have this fetish. But maybe you were like 12 years old and you were sitting in math class and you were having some kind of hormonal surge at the same moment where you looked over and Mrs. Jones was leaning down and like straightening her socks. And for a second you saw a foot and maybe that got linked up in your brain to something erotic. And so now you have a thing for feet. And so for women, it could be something like, you know, you had a math teacher who you thought was really sexy. And so now whenever you see a man teaching you something in some way, you like that kind of authority. I mean, it's a very like, there's a long and winding road to think about what you might find to track, but your core, we have these erotic themes. And for me, like, here's the thing. So when I studied this in grad school, there were some women, we, have, we like one of our homework was fantasies, right? You had to go home and think about your fantasies. Now there are some women who had these fantasies that were like, I'm picturing myself being like penetrated into the ground and I'm being, you know, bucked by nature and there's all these trees around me. I'm being like sunken into the ground and I'm just like. That's not my fantasy. That's not my fantasy. And I had to, I don't naturally have fantasies, but what I knew was I like a little bit of spank. Like I like someone to take charge, wake me up and be, and like, like I like a spanking or I like to be pulled (laughs) or I like to be thrown on the bed. Now that could be because I haven't felt safe to be sexual and I don't want to be the one leading sex. So I'm giving up my power, but sometimes it just feels good to let go and allowed me to be free. It allowed me to be free when someone was aggressive with me. Yeah. So I think for me, going back to sort of the rerouting or reconnecting and getting the sort of phantoms out of the bedroom, because I think that was what was so present for me, feeling like the presence of this guy from high school or like I could revoke, I could take it back. I could, I'll show him, you know, and that's not very helpful 20 plus years later. And so the big gift from that initial MDMA session and this feeling of re-embodiment is that it allowed me to connect somatically mm-hmm. with my body. And this might sound so basic, but even just to be able to interrogate or, or understand that I was holding certain things in my body. And so working with a therapist who could say, where I'd say, oh, my right shoulder is hurt. And then it's like, okay, talk to your shoulder. 
And this sounds so silly, but this was really helpful for me. Okay, shoulder, right shoulder, what is it? Oh, it's my, it's tired. It like doesn't want to be doing all of these things anymore, et cetera. It's amazing the information that you get from your body when you start paying attention and you let your body talk to you. And it's possible that a lot of people have this ongoing relationship with their body from childhood. But for me, it was actually accessing everything that I had repressed and suppressed Mm -hmm. and shoved down. And as I started to interrogate my body and sort of feel more comfortable in it and not just in my head, Mm. it let me get back in my body. Mm. And, you know, part of it is partner work and having a really loving and patient husband who I think could always sense that I was elsewhere, but had no proof, you know, again, like I'm a good performer and I like it. I like closeness. It's not like I, it was fun, but it wasn't taking me all the way there. And so getting into this like inquisitive presencing with Rob was what I needed to sort of start being like, oh, I actually function pretty normally if I don't Mm -hmm. just speed through it Mm -hmm. and refuse, you know, I would sort of go straight to like, I, this is what I want. I don't like, don't linger, you know, <laughs> let's get done. We got let's, stuff let's to do. do it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's the thing. So much sex is like the slowness around sex and we just speed it up. But going back to like the, the therapy, which is so key, it's like why body scans are so important. Mm-hmm. Like doing the body scan breath work thing where you're like, you start, and so it takes forever. You're like, really? We're going to go through everything. Have you ever done those body scans with like your left eye, your right eye, your left, you're like, oh my God, but you go through literally every part of your body. But that's so you can say like my left cheek, my, what am I actually, actually feeling, feeling in that moment? So you start with your shoulder, yeah. just an awakening. Cause right, like I think there's a lot of times where, like I remember this first experience of this in my 20s going to a therapist and I was not ready for her yet. Now she'd probably be the best therapist, but she's like, I like, I went in there and I said, all I feel is anxious. And she's like, well, that can't be true. I'm like, that's the only thing I feel. She's like, no, but what do you feel in your body now? And I was like, that's like crazy talk. Like, what do you mean I feel my body? I feel nothing but anxiety. So I think that that's so relatable too, that you have to unpack it. So like in starting with your shoulder yeah. and again, they say like your issues are in your tissues, right? Was it Vanderkirk, the yeah. body keeps the score, right? Your issues, like literally everything that has happened to us is stored in our body. So for you starting to say like, I'm feeling tension in my shoulder. And this is not easy. Like maybe for some people it is. And I I would love those people. I would love to know who those people are that they literally at every moment know what's happening. Like even right now, like the practice of embodiment is just, okay, I'm feeling your couch beneath me. I'm feeling that my butt's on the couch. I got my one foot on the floor. Like that is the practice of embodiment. Mm -hmm. And if you do that throughout the day or during sex even, that allows you to be present and grounded and out of your head because the disassociation then you were probably out of what well, you were in your head during sex, or yeah, you were just. You I was just not, not absolute feel- absent. I was physically absent, uh-huh. and it's so powerful. I mean, and it's so been powerful, powerful for you know even my husband, who is not nearly as sort of woo woo as me, has had to sort of acknowledge this. Like he he his lower back on the left side, the, his feminine side, you would say, mm. always goes out, and only now, after we've been together for what fifteen years does he recognize a pattern that if I get into a high stress state or something happens to me, his back goes out. And it's interesting. Like Mm -hmm. we're so, we're such somatic 
creatures. And I'm not saying that You're every so phys- everything physical is like has an emotional root, but there's probably a component. I think most things. I, yeah. th- I think a lot of physical pain, a lot of physical suffering, a lot of diseases. I'm going to say, I think a lot of it is related to this. We don't know how to process emotions. Yeah. We literally do not know how to. So we numb. We are addicted. We move. We do all these other things. And what they say, like emotions just take, what is it, like 90 seconds to really process or two minutes to go through a full emotion? But since it's so scary, we just tense, we clench, we hold. We stuff. We stuff. We do all the things. So I love that you guys are attuned and you can talk about it. Because even during sex, why I tell people, like, I, I'll do this and I'll start having sex. And I realize, because again, I don't think that you ever embody. I don't walk around embodied 24-7 at all. But I guess I have a knowing when I'm not. So even during sex with my partner, I'll say, I'll tell when I start getting to this like rut where I'm just going through it and I'll like stop and I'll say, and sometimes I bring him into it. Sometimes I don't, but I'll take a deep breath. I'll breathe. Sometimes I focus on my senses and I'll say, and this is great even when you're driving and you're stressed, but especially in the bedroom, I'll say like, okay, where are my hands? Like my hands are on his body. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling his skin. What am I hearing? I'm hearing my breath. What am I smelling? I'm smelling the candle. And when you do that loop with your senses, it immediately grounds you in the present moment. It takes you out of your head. Yeah. Even if you do that like 10 times during sex, I think that's just a great practice for people who are feeling disassociated to come back into the moment. As many times you have to do that to learn to be like, what am I feeling now? And then another thing is just to slow down sex. Like take the penetration off the table and start with just some basic touching exercises with your partner. It's good that you mentioned too, because Rob is good. Once we sort of knew what I was contending with, he's really good at calling me back and Mm. sort of in this, like, where'd you go? You know, Mm -hmm. like, where are you sort of demanding eye contact or presencing another thing that I would definitely avoid Previously. You avoid eye contact, yeah. yeah. And now you can't get away with it once you bring, yeah. once you do the once work, you, know. you can't get away with it. You've good support. Ugh, I hate I that. Know. Jerk. <laughs> I think that everything we bring into our houses has a certain amount of energy. I mean, I think we all know that feeling of having a cluttered home. And to that end, I'm really careful not only about where I spend my money, but what I bring into my house. And thanks to almost a decade in the wellness industry, I'm very conscious about product claims and product contents. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with the high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. They really make the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beadlet and oil is so slick, it's actually patented. And most importantly, their capsule has a delayed release design to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And they study their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results? It increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are still getting a lot less sun than we would in the middle of summer, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% 
of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Meanwhile, did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. So the book obviously has tons of actual activities and practices, uh-huh. and I know that you're going to bring us more and, and like, just, I'm going to put the pressure on Emily right now that all I want for her to do is to create a basic, simple video, like a Substack membership uh-huh. where every week you get a very short assignment and video with something to do with your partner. And I think eventually, obviously you can make it sort of a solo study, but, but just presencing exercises Mm -hmm. or try this or like actually map your pleasure and tell your partner, maybe for once, I actually don't like it when you do this thing that you love to me. Like I love, my ears are so sensitive and Rob finally, like year three was like, please stop. I don't like that the same way that you like ears. Right. So you um, like when he touches your ear, but if you touch his ear, he's, he's like, not no. into it. No, right. he's right. always, I like oh, to be great. tickled. Like yeah. he finds tickling like for after and he does not find it erotic. So, but like it took us a minute to get there. Yeah. So anyway, I want Emily to create this course, okay. but having counseled just thousands Probably thousands of people at this point. Yeah. Like with a live call and show. Yeah. Yeah, Millions of of listeners. What what is the question? Not to put you on the spot and make you answer the question that you are so tired of answering. (laughs) Because part of this, I'm like, Emily, we gotta categorize your content because I'm sure there are certain things where you're like, I've only answered this question seven hundred and two times. But what's most present for people? What's the what are the most common is it erectile dysfunction? Is That's it also really common? Yeah. Um, well, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that just as a brief, we, we mentioned Meredith Chivers, but the way that desire and arousal are mapped mm. culturally to a physical expression is so fakakta. Yes. And I feel like this whole like, oh, she was wet, quote unquote, she wanted it is wrong. Mm-hmm. And also that men should really understand that because often men cannot show a physical Mm-mm. sign of arousal when they actually feel aroused or are like, why do I have a boner right now? This mm-hmm. is embarrassing. I'm not aroused. So just wanted to say that yes. because it's one of those things that we have to stop in combining or conflating those things culturally. Yes, we do conflate. The, we, we, we conflate desire and arousal. And we were, because we're never taught it, right? Like, like basically desire is the wanting to have sex and arousal is the physical manifestation. So an erection, blood flow, heart quickening. And then how we're going to get to that desire is so, is so hard because that's where it starts, the wanting to have sex. And so, so I can unpack that in a minute because one of the top questions I get asked 
is yes, like people have the physical things. Like I would say off the top of my head, why like for, from women, why can't I have an orgasm? Mm-hmm. Just in general with a partner. Why can't I? What is wrong with me? For men, yeah, there's something like penis. I put it under the umbrella like penis problems come too fast, can't come at all, delayed ejaculation. And then I would say for couples, like the most common thing is mismatched desire. How to mismatch your libidos. How do we want sex at the same rate, the same speed? And that's a lot of what smart sex is about is like, how do you figure out, how do you almost like reverse engineer so you understand everything that needs to happen for you both to want to have sex or at least make sex happen at the very same time. It's like negotiation. It's understanding your body. It's understanding what's turned you on in the past. That's why it's so good to know like your core desires, which we kind of touched on, but like what turns me on? What time of day am I turned on? What time of month am I more turned on? What has to happen in my environment so I am the most aroused? Which is why in the book I write about these pillars of sexual intelligence because it's really not just because what I realized after all these years people come to you for tips right and I could give you a million tips I could give you the right vibrator I could give you the right move for oral sex I give you a million positions I give you all the things and that that is like in a book it is a bible it'll all be there but it's sex is not a quick fix when there's these foundational challenges that you're having you're like I know how to give you know, oral sex, you know, in a million different ways, but I'm not in the mood and I'm not turned on. And I know that sex is important because mm-hmm. I love my partner and I, I know sex is important, but we can't quite hack how to be turned on and ready to go and ready for sex at the right time. And a lot of that is because we don't understand our arousal desire process. Mm-hmm. We don't know that like, if the house is a mesh and mess and there's dishes in the sink or I have resentments with my partner or I haven't worked out in a week or that there's all these factors of why you're not turned on. And so I think getting people to actually think about their sex life in that way and trying to think about like, what do I know to date just from my sexual history? But like what's happening with my hormones? What's happening with my psychology? Do I have unhealed trauma? Do I? So, and you'd think that that would be sort of obvious but it's really not. Like mm-hmm. if you've been on an antidepressant for t- for years or even just recently or any other blood pressure medication and now you're like not as turned on, people often don't make that connection. So I try to unpack it for people. Wherever you're at on your sexual journey, these are the things that you need to know to get yourself to the place where you can have sex and be present, yeah. conscious, embodied, and have more pleasure. Yeah. And you do a wonderful job of normalizing all of these questions and all of these experiences and making people feel not alone. And I love sort of the central thesis of this book, which is in many ways the same as mine, which is, can we just get in touch with our wanting? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Can we start there? And feel okay with it without shame. Can we want without shame? Exactly. It literally is the same. Our book is basically the same. Just kidding, so different. (laughs) I love your book so much, Elise, but it is really about wanting and feeling okay with it and and knowing that like it pleasure is your birthright really is what mine is, is like how do I how do I know it and how do you feel okay with it? And like there's literally no roadmap for us to, to know what it is until we do the internal work. I'm so grateful that people like Emily Morse are leading the conversations that culturally we so desperately need to be having about pleasure, not just the practicalities of sex. And 
while certainly she's happy to sort of get into the weeds with callers to her show, and it's detailed extensively in her book about positions and technique and all of that stuff, I think the core conversation that she's trying to stoke in America for all of us is around our pleasure and what we want. And for too many of us, we've never actually really allowed ourselves to examine that as a core driving impulse in our lives. And so hopefully this is a small invitation to begin that work. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week. And now here's a little preview of the audio of On Our Best Behavior, available wherever you get your audiobooks. The whole thing is read by me. The Natural Superiority of Women Did I get your attention? That was the title of an article that anthropologist Ashley Montague published in the Saturday Evening Post in 1952, followed by a book that's been updated over the decades. As he explains, while the term superiority feels distasteful to women, it's the truth. On every measure, we are better built for survival. There's another insidious consequence of the hamster wheel women find ourselves on. Because we're so consumed by our busyness, because so much of our attention is trained on living up to society's expectations for survival, it's impossible to find the space to think and plan our way out of these inequities. We're too overwhelmed. We don't have time to fight for our reproductive rights, for equal pay, for paid family leave, and reasonable gun laws to keep our children safe. We don't have time to expand. Denying us space and stillness is the most pernicious way those at the top of the patriarchy keep their feet on our necks. I understand their fear. Those who benefit from this system of dominance understand that when women and other marginalized communities rise in righteous anger, pulling each other up into full resistance in the process, their time and power will come to an end. Not only will we outwork them, let the preceding pages be proof of our unfailing industriousness, we will also outperform them. When Zoom school became an unexpected and uninvited full-time job, it provided an initiation into a knowing most women have long understood. The girls run circles around the boys. In my observations from peering over my son's shoulder at the screen, the girls seem to be grades ahead in reading, in math, in sitting still and listening, in putting on their own clothes and combing their hair. As the mother of two sons, I wonder if I should fear for my children's future. They are not primed for a post-patriarchal world. The work of sociologists Thomas Dupreet and Claudia Buckman illustrates that girls have outperformed boys in school for a century. But you wouldn't know that from the power stack in society or the ways in which women feel like they can't win. Women are still widely unrepresented outside school hallways. We're all well aware that there are more CEOs named John and David in the Fortune 500 than women with that title. As of 2021, women represented only 27% of Congress and held only 18% of governor's seats. 58% of jobs that pay less than $11 per hour are held by women. And 56% of women live in poverty. 
particularly women of color. We know that systemically nothing feels right or balanced. We know that this way of living and doing is not sustainable. While we must be unrepentant in our efforts for more than equity in the boardrooms and the courtrooms, after all, you don't get to equal representation, the middle, by aiming for the middle, particularly when things are so unbalanced in our disfavor. Focusing on systemic change is not the only work. This isn't simply a numbers game. It requires an energetic shift, an equalization between the divine masculine, structure, order, and the divine feminine, nurturance, care, creativity, in each of us and in our systems. We need to change the standards of society, and that will not happen while we keep doing it all ourselves. We must drop the ball and force others, men, to pick it up. We must let ourselves off the hook, cultivate deep self-love, and then learn how to turn and reflect it back on other women, unabashedly, fervently, with the full force of our empathy and compassion. We need our rest, our energetic reserves for putting the world back in order. We need to move past our worry that we're not doing enough and get on side with each other so that we can expand together. This work requires rest, self-care, and support. It requires boundaries and letting go of perfection or any expectation that pulls us away from what absolutely needs to get done and distracts us from what we feel called to do. Our planet and our future depend on our tender care, our capacity, innate or not, to help tend to the messes we've made. It's not that we don't need men, we certainly do, but we need their energy to be focused on easing the burdens of care. The cleaning up of messes in the home and outside of it must be shared. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack newsletter. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive on Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. Meanwhile, if you haven't already, please pre-order my book coming May 23rd. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, and it's an exploration of the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available for now, for free, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Doval for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.
My 13-year-old acts like a puppy again. Almost overnight, she's a different dog. Perfect poops. When people switch their dog's food to the farmer's dog, the effects can seem like magic. But there's no magic involved. It's simply real meat and vegetables with all the nutrients dogs need instead of highly processed pellets. No tricks, just smarter, healthier pet food delivered in packs portioned for your dog. It's amazing what real food can do. Get 50% off your first order at thefarmersdog.com slash nomagic50.